How are you? Good to be together. Grab your Bibles. Uh, we are starting a new series in the Gospel of John, and I really want to encourage you in the coming weeks. Uh, we do this all the time, but want to encourage you in this new series, would you bring your Bibles with you? Uh, so important that you follow along and maybe take some notes, draw a few lines. Uh, if you take notes, if you write in your Bibles, this would be a good series. We put all the verses up on the screen, but uh, it's interesting how that has created a habit in us that we no longer carry our Bibles. So if you've got your phone, a Bible on the phone, or your own Bible with you, I encourage you to do that and bring them with you. But we are going to dive into this new series, really excited about it. Uh, it's going to be a great study together. So you know for sure, front and center this week, there has been one story that has dominated the news. Uh, the questions, the observations, interviewing of people, their reflections on the life of one particular individual. And the question, how has or will the death of Queen Elizabeth affect you? How will it affect our world? As you reflect on her long life and her long reign, what thoughts do you have about her? What impact will those 70 years have as she has now passed? And, and just frankly, what do you think about her life, her life well lived? And we're reminded in a very tangible way of the amazing impact that just one solitary life can have on the world. As Monday, as we tune in to uh, watch and eulogize and remember her life, uh, we are impacted by it. So we're starting a new study in the Gospel of John, and if I were to summarize the intention of this entire book down to one question, it might be the question, what do you think of Jesus? What impact has he had on your life? What impact has his life had on the world? Jesus left an indelible mark on human history. There is no question about that. Whatever you think of him, whatever people say about him, there is no question that he is indeed the central personality of human history. And the truth is, if the Lord tarries, so if human history carries on for another two or 300 years, the memory of Queen Elizabeth will fade. After all, she is Queen Elizabeth II. How much do you know about Queen Elizabeth I? Uh, she's the longest reigning monarch, second only to Queen Victoria, who was just 150 years ago, but how little do we know about Queen Victoria's life? But there is one life that has profoundly impacted the world and has not been forgotten, nor has the memory of his life faded in any way, shape, or form. Jesus is still an interesting and fascinating character to the world, and he's just as interesting today as he has always been. Uh, it's interesting to me that every year, McLean's and Time and Life magazines and many others uh, publish special editions on the life of Jesus. It's amazing that they still do this, and apparently they still sell like hotcakes. People are curious. They are interested. They want to know about this person named Jesus. Every world religion has an opinion about Jesus. Did you know that Islam's holy book, the Quran, mentions Jesus Christ 93 times in the Quran? That's four times more than it actually mentions Muhammad himself. Is that not interesting? Our calendar, every time you write the date, 2022 AD or CE, 
Anno Domini, or Common Era. So the old dating system, A.D. and B.C., Anno Domini, the year of our Lord, and B.C. before Christ, and then it's been updated to be so-called religiously neutral, the Common Era, and before the Common Era, until you dig in and you ask the question, but what divides those two eras? Oh, it's the birth of Christ. So he's still there. Uh, Barna surveyed a few years back here in North America. What do you think of Jesus? What do you know of Jesus? And the first question was, was Jesus a real historical person? Did he actually live? And, and 9 out of 10 North Americans, 92% said, yes, of course he lived. Uh, 8% said, well, not sure. But it's interesting, as the questions got more detailed, this next question, very critical. Well, was he God or was he just a great spiritual leader? And the stats are very, very different. 56% said, yes, he's God. 26% no, he's just a good spiritual leader like others, and 18%, I'm not sure who he was. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the first three gospels in the New Testament, all record a question that Jesus asked of his disciples. And it was this question, Matthew puts it this way, Jesus asked, who do people say the Son of Man is? And so they gave a, a number of multiple choice responses of what the disciples were hearing out on the streets. And then he asked the question, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replies, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And if you know the context there, it's a very famous text where Jesus then says, and based on this revelation, what you have just said, Peter, this declaration, this confession, this rock that you have just stated, I am going to build my church. I'm going to build my church on this declaration that Jesus Christ is indeed the Son of God. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ our Lord. On this rock I will build my church, that you are indeed the Son of God. So John, in our gospel, is going to ask and answer that very same question. And John gives us a very clear thesis statement of why he wrote this 21-chapter book. Near the end, in chapter 20, he says, These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John is a convinced follower of Jesus Christ, and he wants to convince his readers that they would be convinced followers as well. And so the book presses us with this claim. Because Jesus is God, he is worthy of our worship. That is how this book is going to press into us again and again and again, and specifically in these opening verses. Because Jesus is God, he is worthy of our worship. And so today we're literally just looking at the introduction, the prologue, if you will, the first 18 verses, where it says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of will of man, but of God. 
And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Christmas story. We have seen his glory, glory as of the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we've all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who's at the Father's side, he has made him known. The reading of God's word. If you want the Cole's notes on this prologue, it would be this. It's simply the introduction, the main characters, and the main themes that we are going to come back to again and again throughout this study. We meet Jesus and we meet John the Baptist. And next week we'll look specifically at his life. We get the first glimpse of these themes. The pre-existence of the Word, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. We get the theme that he is both life and light. And those themes come up again and again and again in this book. And that the light is rejected by some and received by others. And that a new birth, a new life is available, and it is not by human initiative, but it is by God's initiative alone. But supremely and succinctly, most importantly in this prologue, what we hear from John is, let me tell you about the creator who stepped into time and space. Let me tell you about the word who is God made flesh. If you look at the first six words in this text, in the beginning was the word, and then drop down to verse 14, and the word became flesh. You have the summary statement. In the beginning was the word, and the word became flesh. This is what John is going to try to convince us of in this short prologue. That Jesus Christ was and is God. And because Jesus is God, he is worthy of our worship. This is what we are going to focus on. If you remember nothing else, remember that theme. Now, most of you know this, but it's worth a quick mention. There are four accounts of Jesus' life. The first four books in your New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're like a four-part harmony. uh, The string quartet or four players on the same sports team. They're all working toward the same goal. They're each unique and yet they are unified. The four biographies give us a a well-rounded picture of Jesus' life. Uh, It's as though you're on a film set and there are four different cameras taking different angles of that particular scene and you get different looks at the life of Jesus from these four authors. Matthew focused primarily to a Jewish audience uh, who would know the Old Testament. And over and over again in Matthew's gospel, you hear the phrase, it was to fulfill the Old Testament prophecy, to fulfill prophecy, to fulfill prophecy to a Jewish audience. Mark was really written to a Roman audience. It's very fast-paced. It's a shorter book. It is filled with action. It's filled with words like immediately and then next and then. Luke was written to a Greek audience, an audience who valued rational thought and philosophy and reason and details. And Dr. Luke, just give me the facts. John's gospel is unique in that it is really the gospel for the common man. It's really the gospel for all people. It's written in the simplest language of all four gospels, and it has a very broad-based appeal to all readers. And this gospel was written by the youngest of the 12 disciples. So two brothers, James and John, the youngest is John, 
He was probably a teenager. He might have been 16 or 18 years old when he began to follow Jesus, and he lived the longest of all of them. He wrote four other books in the New Testament, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John near the end of the Bible, and the last book, The Revelation of Jesus, was written by the Apostle John around 100 AD when he was an old man, but he was the last surviving disciple. He was the youngest, and then he lived the longest. And John starts his book with a term that would have been familiar to both the Jewish and the Greek audience that he's writing to. And he says, in the beginning was the word. And the word in the Greek language there is logos, logos. Now, I throw that up there because it's a Greek word that we use almost every day in our English language. Guaranteed, a week does not go by, particularly if you're a student, a week does not go by that you do not speak the word logos in the English language because so many words contain this word. Biology, sociology, psychology, anthropology, theology, any word in English that ends with logi, you are saying the Greek word logos. The Greek word logos simply means the word about or the study about or the science about. So biology is the study of the biosphere, a plant and animal life. Theology is the study of the theos, God himself. Psychology, the study of the psyche, the study of the mind. It's the word about these things. Uh, or, or we add other words to it. Uh, you've heard the word trilogy. There it is again, tri-word, three words, three stories about. So if you've watched the trilogy, The Lord of the Rings, which is, of course, the best trilogy ever written in the history of humanity, <laughs> if you've read it, you know it is a three-part story, three words on the same subject, or a eulogy. The you is a good or well word. So it's a word of praise. And so when we eulogize someone, Monday as we watch the queen's funeral, if you do, you will hear a eulogy. You will hear good words, words of praise, a study in praise, if you will. So we use that word all the time. And the Jews and the Greeks in that first century also had a concept of the word or the logos. And so the Jews in the first century had a term called memra that they used to refer to God. And it was actually an Aramaic word. Now, just stay with me because this is about the time when I get into stuff like this that you start to glaze over. Do not do that. Please stay with me. This is so fascinating. Believe me, it's fascinating. So God-fearing Jews would never speak the name of God. His name, what we say, Yahweh, Jehovah, was just too holy. They would not utter it. They did not want to take the name of the Lord in vain. They would use other words for the Lord, like Adonai means Lord, but they wouldn't use his proper name, Yahweh, Jehovah. And so over time, they began to refer to God in essence of his work, that the word of the Lord and this concept of God's creative activity that is carried out by his spoken word. You go back to Genesis, he spoke creation into being. By the word of the Lord, the, the universe is sustained. By the word of the Lord, if you read through the Old Testament, that phrase comes up again and again and again. A personification of God's work, the word of the Lord. And so the shorthand for the Lord became this word, the word, and you go, well, where did Memra come from? that Aramaic word. Well, if you know Jewish history, you'll know that they spent 70 plus years in exile in Babylon. And one of the things that happened to them in Babylon is that they lost the Hebrew language. 
and they learned to speak Aramaic. They learned to speak the trade language of the Middle East. And so then when the Old Testament scriptures, the law was read in Hebrew, they needed someone to translate it for them into Aramaic. And they literally wrote it down. And those translations, there's several of them, are called the Targums. It's an Aramaic translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. Now, this is really fascinating. I, I agree with me. It, it really, truly is fascinating. The translation, so read Genesis 1 and 3 with me in our English translation. In the beginning, the first mention of sports in the Bible... In the big inning. Got it? I know. Sorry. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In verse 3, God said, let there be light. And there was light. That's our English translation from the Hebrew. Now look at the Aramaic translation from the Hebrew. From the beginning, the wisdom of the memra word of the Lord created and perfected the heavens and the earth. And verse three, the memra word of the Lord said, let there be light. And there was light by his memra, his word. So in the first century, the Jews would have had this concept of the word because they referred to God as the word, the, the memra. So when John grabs the Greek word logos and he calls God the word, it would connect with that Jewish audience. And it is this exact idea that he uses to open his gospel account. The word, the logos, and the memra were creating at the beginning. So that's the Jews. But the Greeks also had a concept of the logos. They looked in their philosophical minds at the universe, at the world, so magnificent and dependable, night and day, Stars and planets, galaxies and seasons coming and going, nature's wonders. And they ask the question that every generation has asked when we look at the beauty of creation, who did this? Who made this? Who keeps it in order? A world that is in constant flux and constant change and yet never in chaos. There has to be some overarching power that is keeping the universe together, keeping us from spinning out of control. And the Greek philosophers named that higher power, that reason, that force, that mind in the universe, they named it the logos. The logos is the power that keeps the world from spinning out of control. And so you read verse 1, and you say, why didn't John just write it plain and simple? In the beginning, God. Why did he say, in the beginning was the Word? And I think the reason is this, because he knew that there were some in his audience who weren't there yet. Who wouldn't immediately connect with the idea, let's talk about God. In the beginning, God. So he grabbed a concept that they had in their culture. In the beginning, the Logos. And the Jew might have heard, in the beginning, the Memra. So he contextualizes the message. He takes a concept from their culture, already in their minds, and he uses that concept to point them to Jesus. Or as William Barclay puts, he says this, all your lives you've been fascinated by this great guiding, controlling mind of God. The mind of God has come to earth in the man Jesus. Look at him and you'll see what the mind and thought of God are like. This is what the Greek listener would have heard. It's fascinating because we thought we're the first generation to create this thing called seeker sensitivity, right? To give a message in the language of the day. And so if John were writing this today in North America, I honestly, the term I think that John would use today would be higher power. 
I think John would say in the beginning was the higher power. Why? Because the higher power is a concept known across North America, largely through 12-step programs, They say, I am powerless over whatever the addiction that I happen to have. I am powerless. I cannot fix this myself. And I need some source of strength outside of myself. And whether you call it God or Jesus or whatever you want to call it, you need a source of power. So you turn to your higher power. And this concept has infiltrated North American thought. That there is a controlling force that can help you when you are powerless. Now, we would identify that with God, but not everybody does. So John 1.1, in other words, is Christianity clothed in the language of the common man. John, as I said, uses the most common language of all the four Gospels. So the Logos, the word, the Memra, the higher power, is the same God who created the world. That's We've taken all this time to get that one thought. John 1.1, all of that time, that background that John is basically saying, the Logos is the same God who created But then more than that, link it down to verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That he stepped down into our darkness to reveal himself. And just in case there is any lingering doubt in the back of your mind that he's actually speaking of Jesus, because he hasn't yet named him Jesus, not in these first 18 verses. But you do remember we read in verse 6 to 8, John the Baptist's testimony. That John the Baptist came as a witness to bear witness of the light. And if you look at verse 15, it says, And John bore witness about him, and he said, This is him who I said comes after, uh, who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Okay, that's John the Baptist's statement. Now skip across the page in your Bibles and look at verse 29. This is speaking. We'll get at this next week. This is John the Baptist. The next day he saw Jesus, the first time we see Jesus connected. Jesus coming toward him and he said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then here's his statement. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. He pre-existed me. We're going to get at that next week, but John is older than Jesus physically. But he says, Jesus was before me. What does that indicate? He was the pre-existent one. So if you write in your Bibles, if you connect thoughts, draw a line between verse 15 and verse 30. They are a direct connection. And if there's anyone yet thinking, well, is it Jesus? Is it the word? Is it all these? Then fast forward to the end of your Bible, the revelation of Jesus, which this same author also wrote. And in chapter 19 of Revelation, we get this picture of Jesus coming in his second coming, riding victorious on the back of a white stallion, And it says there, coming, rushing into town, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and then here we get it, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Okay, are you with me? The Word, the Logos, the Memra is God, and his name is is Jesus Christ. You're with me? That's what John is saying. And the fundamental argument that John is making in this text is that Jesus is God, and it matters. If you take nothing else with you this weekend, you must take this thought with you. Because Jesus is God, he is worthy of our worship. 
Only God has authority over the created order. So Jesus can work miracles. Only God has the ability to forgive sin. And so if Jesus was not God, then his life and his death are in vain. And yet this debate, and it's why I'm hammering away at it, and we'll get back to it in previous weeks, or not previous weeks, that's before us, whatever, the weeks to come. (laughs) Why I'm hammering away at it is because this debate has been the debate of heretics all through the centuries, from right the beginning of the church right up to our day, to redefine who Jesus was and is. Either he's God and not man, like the Gnostics thought, or he's man but not God, like the Arians thought. And most common today is the Arian thought, that's from the third century, that he was man but not God, not fully God. He's something other. He might be a God or a creature of God, but he is not the pre-existent God. So in our world today, you see this in Mormonism, you see it in Jehovah Witness, and you see it in the Islamic faith, that he is a man, but he is not God. And unfortunately, you also see it creeping into our Protestant churches as well. You see it clearly in liberal Christianity and increasingly in what we call so-called progressive Christianity that says he's a man, but he's not God. He's something a little bit less. But if Jesus is not God, if he is not the sinless son of God, then he has to be something else. Like, follow the logic on that. If he is not God, then what is he? He is something else. And so either he is greatly self-deceived because he accepted worship as though he were God, so he's either crazy Or he's a great deceiver. He is a great charlatan. He is a great actor. He has pulled the wool over everyone's eyes. The greatest hoax in history. But the one thing that you cannot say about him is that he is a good moral teacher because a good moral teacher would not lie to us in that way, right? And some of you already are probably guessing where I'm going with this. One of the most famous quotes in the last century from C.S. Lewis. When he says this, it's a long quote, but it's well worth it. I am trying to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now, it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. So our study is critical. Because there is a resurgence in the day that we live in of sorts of the de-deifying of Jesus. The de-deifying. Authors and teachers and preachers, in fact, entire denominations that say exactly what Lewis warned us against saying. That he is not God. 
that he is something else. He's a great moral teacher. He's a good example. We should follow his steps, but we should not worship him because he is not God. And John points to the revelation that God has given us of himself. Uh, primarily in this text, he refers to creation. God spoke through creation, he spoke through his written word, and ultimately, he spoke through Jesus' life itself, Hebrews 1 tells us. But Romans 1 says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. In other words, creation shouts at us. The birds, the trees, the rivers, the mountains, the stars, all scream out, there's a God, there's a God, there's a God, wake up. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. Have you ever been out on a very black night away from the lights of the city and look up to the galaxies, the stars, whether it's the northern lights or whatever it is you see, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Around the globe, their voice goes out to all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. There's a God, there's a God, there's a God. The evidence of creation points perhaps to the biggest gap in the atheistic worldview. That if there is no controlling force in the universe... That if there is no intelligent design, if there is no spiritual reality, if we are truly just a naturalist, a naturalistic world with no spiritual reality, then how do you explain the intricacies of life and the undeniable order and design of the world if there is no reason, if there is no logos, if there is no memra? And the atheist is making a statement of faith just as much as the theist is. The atheist is saying, I choose to believe that there is no controlling force in the universe. I choose to believe that everything that we see simply happened by chance. Even though I can't prove it to be true, this is my statement of faith, there is no God, there is no spiritual reality. And as time marches on, interestingly, that the atheistic worldview is crumbling under the weight of evidence. Uh, a book that you'll likely hear me refer to in this series, a great book, Eric Metaxas' book, Is Atheism Dead? Now, Metaxas would not maybe be an evangelical Christian in our terms. Uh, I, he's certainly a, a follower of Christ and all of this stuff. But as he writes, you'll say, I don't know if I agree with everything that writes. But read the book. What he says is there are five major arguments that are pulling the rug out from under atheism. The first is the Big Bang Theory. And I know that the moment I say that, somebody's going to freak out and say me an email. Don't do that. The, his whole point is scientists look at the Big Bang and what they take from it is there was a beginning point in the universe which is an absolute change for most scientists. To go back and say there was a beginning point, there was a time when nothing existed. They don't know what the answer before it was but they've admitted the fact that there was a beginning. Secondly, the fine-tuning of the universe. That we live in a universe that is so minutially fine-tuned, whether you look through a telescope or a microscope. Third, abogenesis. Uh, ab by ah, ah, by, ah, by genesis. <laughs> Against biogenesis. 
So the thought that given billions of years that life could just emerge out of a primordial soup, more and more mathematicians and scientists are saying it doesn't matter how much time you have, that is a mathematical and a scientific impossibility. It could not have happened. Fourth, archaeological evidence is confirming again and again in a year, decade after decade, year after year, that the historicity of the scriptures are actually true. And then number five, and most poignantly, is this. After about 150 years of mainstream atheism, since Darwin wrote, as we see the effects of atheism on the atheistic estate and everyone on the planet goes, there's no way I want to live in a land controlled with thought like that. Whether you look at the Holocaust, whether you look at the, uh, the labor camps of the Gulag or any of the other atrocities in so-called atheistic states today, the world goes, that's the worst place on the planet I would ever want to live. I don't want to live under that kind of regime because look at the effect it has had on humanity. Humanity does not flourish under atheism. Humanity flourishes in nations where theism is at the, at the core. Yes and amen, Metaxas. Wow. John reminds us that evidence has always existed, we've just not wanted to see it. So he says in here, light has come into the world, but darkness didn't grab hold of it. It's an echo to Romans 1.21. Although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. In their, futile, their thinking became futile, their foolish hearts were darkened. In other words, regardless of what the evidence says, I've made up my mind, there is no God. John 3.19, this is the verdict. This is the verdict, light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Okay, we gotta wrap this thing. For so many people, it comes down simply to this. If God exists, if the Bible is true, I might have to change the way I live my life. The ethical implications are too great for me. And if this is true, I would have to give up some moral, some sexual, some relational practice that I enjoy, and I'd rather not know then that this is true. But the glory, however, that we see in this text is for those who will embrace Jesus. Those who did receive it, he gave the right to be called children of God, those who reach out and took hold of it. The transformation, this amazing transformation, you're no longer alienated from God, you're now literally God's children, born not of physical flesh and blood, but born of the Spirit. We'll get back to that in John chapter 3. No longer in darkness, but now living in light. No longer spiritually dead, but vibrantly alive by the Spirit. Light, life, grace, and truth. Those themes come up again and again and again in this book. The Logos, the higher power, the Word. Jesus stepped into our world. And what the text is telling us is that God can be known if we want to know him. Amen. And so the question is this. How about you? There's so much more that we could say in these first 18 verses, and obviously I've skipped over most of it. We've focused primarily on those first three. And truthfully, John is very repetitive, so we are going to come back to these themes again and again in the coming months. But the key question that John is pressing in on us is simply this, who do you say that I am? What do you think of me? And I'm writing to convince you of one thing, that he was and is God, and that he is worthy of our worship and he's worthy of our lives. And so the question would simply be this, very simply, do you care? 
Because many in our day-to-day are not actually hostile toward the things of God. And if Barna's survey tells us anything, nine out of 10 North Americans still say they believe a God exists. So they're not hostile necessarily. They're just apathetic or ignorant toward the things of God. They could care less. They're, they're busy doing other things with their lives. It's not that they're anti-God. They just haven't given him the time of day. Never seriously considered the claims of Jesus, but this book, the Gospel of John, will not leave that conversation alone. And if the claims of this book are true, then there is only one response that is adequate. If Jesus be God, he is worthy of my worship and worthy of my life. But be it known that he is not a hard taskmaster. We're told here that he takes on human flesh. Why? Like the Greek gods, angry, wipe us out, destroy us, cause us to grovel like the Marvel Avengers. No, he takes on human flesh and he is full of grace and truth. Grace upon grace poured out. That he doesn't come bringing the legalism of the law, but he comes bringing grace and truth. That he comes to set us free from the slavery to the law. He comes to give us life. And and John's Jewish listeners in particular would have known the demands of the Old Testament law. The righteousness demanded of anyone who wanted to enter the presence of God. Psalm 24, the most devastating psalm for us if you take it honestly. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who? Who? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, do any of us qualify? Not a single one. So therefore, none of us can ascend the hill of the Lord. But thank God there was one with clean hands and a pure heart who ascended the hill of the Lord and takes us with him on his back. Amen? That the righteousness of Jesus is given to us. The law, truth, demands that we are righteous. Grace gives us the righteousness of Jesus. The law says you better work, you better perform, your works matter, your salvation is on you. Grace says no, Jesus worked in your place. Jesus did what you cannot do. It is not your works that save you, but it is Jesus' works that save you. And maybe you're here and listening and you've had a bad church experience somewhere along the line. And you've pushed away Jesus because of some human experience. And maybe you've only experienced law and truth, but you've never experienced grace. And my hope and prayer for you is that you'll stick with us for a few weeks, that you'll get a fresh look at Jesus, or maybe you'll meet him for the very first time. Because the Gospel of John is an invitation. The Logos, the higher power, wants to be known. Is there someone out there Is there a higher power? Is there a personal force to be reckoned with in the universe? And the only way to know is if you take the journey and you make the pursuit and you ask the question. And so for some listening this weekend, it might be all new to you. And you're not even sure. And I want to encourage you to pray a prayer. I like to call it the skeptic's prayer. It doesn't have to be these words at all. These are my words. Put them into your own words. But pray something like this. If you're here and you're not sure about this, pray something like this. God, I'm not even sure I believe you exist. 
But if you do exist, if you are real, I'd like to know that. And I'm asking you would reveal yourself to me in such a way that I can understand I have many questions, but I am open. And I know over the years, many people who have prayed a prayer like that, and amazingly, God shows up in tangible ways to make himself real. And if you're listening to this message and you're like, that's me. I don't know if I even believe in this God. Then ask God to show himself to you, and I can guarantee he will. And for many, many others, John is going to give us the rock-solid assurance that our faith in Jesus Christ is sound. That he is indeed God and he is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of our lives. That he is indeed who he claimed to be. That he was and is God and it matters. So let me pray for you. Lord Jesus, thank you for this rock solid assurance that we get as we open this book. Particularly in a day, and I suppose our day is no different than any other generation that has lived but in a day when we feel like we need an anchor, when we need something rock solid to hang on to in our life, when there's so much change going on around us. And so, Lord, this is the anchor that you, the creator God, took on human flesh in the person of Jesus, that you came, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, to walk among us, to live the life that we couldn't live, and then to offer your life as a sacrifice to forgive us for our sins. Lord God, would you anchor us in that truth? Would you cause us to worship you on a daily basis? Lord, would you fill us with joy because of grace and truth? We no longer live under the, the, the burden of the law. We live under the freedom of grace and that our lives would be so joy-filled in this culture that we live in. And then God, could you use us to make a difference in the world around us? We ask this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.